Okay, it looks like uh, we're about on time here to get started if everybody's uh, ready to go here with Colossians. Um, recall that when I, when I kind of gave the introduction of Colossians, I said, don't be fooled by the fact that this book is only four, uh, four chapters. There's a ton of theology in it, and today we're going to really kind of dive into some of the theology that pa- Paul's going to be bringing up um, here. So before we get started, when we start with our invocation and our prayer, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, if you guys still have your outlines uh, with you, we... um, uh, are still in this Paul's overture uh, section, which I talked talked about in the introduction. We've been through that first um, the first section, the Thanksgiving report, and last week we finished that, and then we started into this section two, which is the source of knowledge and the reason for um, intercession. And uh, it, Paul, in the Thanksgiving report, when he spoke to the Colossians as their status as Christians in that report. Now, again, in this section, what we're doing is we're looking at um, noting the need, uh, the needs of the Colossians for which he actually is praying for, and it's for his readers to grow in faith um, and godly living. So, uh, we did cover um, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. I'm going to read that. Um, remember, we, we talked uh, really in depth about Paul praying for the Colossians, their knowledge, um, wisdom, and understanding. And we kind of went through those three terms from a biblical perspective, Old Testament um, definitions, and kind of what Paul was talking about when he was praying for these three, um, these three things for the Colossians. And then, then if you'll recall, we looked at also, remember how Paul had... had prayed for that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We kind of spent some time on that. We talked about, uh, you know, justification and then also sanctification, our sanctified life, and kind of really looked at that and kind of looked at some other Pauline themes on that sanctified life. And I remember I got into, um, you know, some things that Luther discussed about our sanctified life is how we live as Christians, and it's really ultimately for the benefit of our neighbor. Um, there's some vocation, the doctrine of vocation heavily in that. I kind of spoke about that last time. Um, so re- recall in verse uh, 9 uh, through 12, then I'm not, I actually won't read that just for time, but we, we kind of covered that aspect. Now today we're going to move on. I'm going to try to finish up uh, this section of um, the source of knowledge and, and the reason for Paul's prayers. And then we'll start into this next section under the overture, which has been outlined as a subcategory. It's the Christ hymn. And it, the real focus on that is going to be really creation, Christ as creator, and then also what he's done in, in terms of redemption and reconciliation. Um, any follow-up questions or anything from last week that I, by chance, left hanging or confusing? Okay. If not, then why don't we go ahead and start with verse 
13 then. So it's Colossians 1, verse 13. So I'm going to read 13 and 14, and then we'll, we'll go through it and kind of wrap this section up. So verse 13, He, meaning Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so there's actually a lot of theological topics here that we're going to delve into. So first of all, we see giving thanks to the Father who is qualified he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now we've seen uh, darkness earlier, and it's this uh, kind of this motif of light and darkness. And remember, I referenced John's up. Um, John's gospel has a lot of this motif. We know that lightness is good, and everything of Christ, and darkness um, is of the devil or of evil. So when Paul here then is writing about this domain of darkness, uh, the first thing we think of is really an evil, right? Because darkness is here. But Paul, I think, is taking this actually even deeper than that. And most most, uh, uh, commentaries talk about this domain of darkness and that it's when Paul, especially Paul, uses it and used in, in the New Testament... We really can see uh, the broad category of our understanding and our Lord's doctrine on the concept of original sin. So I want to talk about original sin just for a moment here and what Paul is meaning that, that we are in this domain of darkness. And of course, where I go on this, I look at our uh, Lutheran confessions. They're always rich in these broad uh, theological topics and especially original sin and um, I think uh, the Lutheran Church does a very good of understanding this original sin which out of the original sin then all the other big concepts of justification sanctification sanctification uh, really make sense and uh, so this concept of original sin is very important in our Augsburg Confession in Article 2 it does address this topic of original sin And I'm going to read it. It says this, (coughs) Article 2. Furthermore, it is taught among us, meaning the Reformers, that since the fall of Adam, all human beings who were born in the natural way, the reason that says in the natural way, because there's one human being that doesn't have original sin who was not born in a natural way, right? And that's Christ. But all human beings who are born in a natural way, you and I, and all, everybody actually on earth except for Christ, are conceived and born in sin. This means that from birth they are full of evil lust and inclination and cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith of God. Moreover, the same innate disease and original sin is truly sin, and, con- and condemns to God's eternal wrath all who are not in turn born anew through baptism and the Holy Spirit. So this is the idea of original sin here, that we're all, we all, everybody in the world is born to it. And, and it's not really looking at us and what we do. It's just our innate, inherent nature from our conception and birth 
that our, our original parents, Adam and Eve, we've inherited the sin, um, their sin after the fall, and it's been carried on from generation to generation from our parents and, unfortunately, on to our kids. This is the doctrine of original sin. So because of this original sin, none of Adam and Eve's descendants, which is the entire world, with the exception of Christ, is without it. We would remain sinners even if we didn't sin, okay? Just because of our original nature of original sin. But Paul, then in verse 16, when he's talking about that Christ has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, it's really good news for us, right? Paul is telling us that the original sin that we're born with even though it's just an innate disease, we have a great physician who cures us of that, and that is Christ. Christ has delivered us from our original sin. Any thoughts or questions? Or I know you all have heard this concept before of original sin, but here Paul is delving right into it in this concept of domain of darkness. So the question then is, Paul says that Christ has delivered us from this original sin and from all forms of sin. So the question is, how? And then Paul moves on to tell us how uh, here in a minute. Um, (coughs) In addition to this concept of the domain of darkness, Paul says that Christ has taken us out of the domain of darkness, but he's transferred us then into the kingdom of his beloved son. This term kingdom is very important here as well. In the Greek, it's basileia. And really what Paul's referring here is not this idea of a, you know, a, an, an empire necessarily, but what it, a kingdom him is really God's rule. And this, you know, from when we look at our gospels, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God a lot, especially in Matthew Um, And what this means, what Paul is referring to when he talks about this kingdom um, that we are transferred into, it's the kingdom of God or of heaven. It's also, it's where God's rule is and God rules in this, in grace. For when God has begun to rule, he is restoring things to the way in which he intended them to be prior to the fall. Okay, so this is the new creation. So we are transferred, then we're taken out of darkness and put into light, and we are transferred into this kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus did proclaim that this rule had been inaugurated with his own coming and his incarnation. And then throughout uh, Jesus' ministry, people would be, he talked about people at that time being transferred into God's gracious rule. And the gracious rule of God was instituted then by the way of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus talks about a lot about this in the Gospels, which Christ acquired through giving himself to death at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And of course, that's on the cross. So this was really the consummation of the true kingdom of God, Jesus at the cross. So Paul's use of kingdom here is God's gracious rule being a present reality in the work of Christ. 
But when we look at this kingdom also, we can also look at it from, <coughs> there's an aspect of a now and then aspect to it. Yes, um, the now aspect to it is this, <coughs> even though Jesus at the second coming, that's really when the ultimate consummation of God's ultimate rule will take place, but that is in the future. But the good news for us is that, is we don't have to wait for that future to take place at Christ's second coming to be transferred into the kingdom of God. You see, the good news is, is there's a now aspect to the kingdom of God. We're presently transferred now, but also there is a future kind of eschatological look at it that the ultimate kingdom of God and the restoration will be um, at the second coming. But again, this kingdom is transferred to us now. In fact, it was transferred us into our baptism. It's transferred to us through the word and through the Lord's Supper, and that's the forgiveness of sins. So there's a beauty to this that uh, we don't have to look, you know, to some event that's going to happen, that this is a present reality for us now. And in fact, with respect to the second coming in the kingdom of God, as Christians, we can can hold comfort in knowing that um, at the last day, uh, we don't really have to fear that judgment or entering in, whether we're going to enter into this kingdom or not. Paul tells us it's now. And in fact, Jesus has really already judged us. Jesus judged us on his judgment day for us was on the cross, right? That was his judgment day. And then it's given to us in our baptism. So actually when we were baptized, that was the day of our judgment where we were declared righteous. And at that point we became heirs of God and the kingdom of God was a reality to us now in this visible element of baptism in a continuing reality for us in the visible um, the visible elements of his blood and his body in the Lord's Supper. So that's what Paul is referring to when we're transferred into the kingdom. God's gracious rule is a present reality for us in the work of Christ, but also we'll see his ultimate rule in his second coming in the resurrection. Questions? Yes. We need the mic over there, Christy. Why someone have the mic? <coughs> My question is, and I think pastors talked about it when we studied Revelation, but his kingdom will will he rule different in the other the new kingdom? Or is the rule, he's ruling now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think certainly, I mean, um, I don't want to step on pastor's toes either, but even when I, you know, my, my analysis of in, in Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms, I mean, right now, since we do have a worldly kingdom, there are two di- different kingdoms, the left hand and the right hand kingdom. But of course, God rules both. But at the second coming, then, we do lose the left-hand kingdom, the creation, everything like that. And then it's going to be like the kingdom of the right, which is all um, the kingdom of grace and the forgiveness of sins. And at that point, there is no more original sin. There's no sin. There's none of the worldly um, concepts that we have to deal with now of governing authorities and everything. At that point, at the new creation and the new kingdom, there's going to be one governing authority. It's, it's the triune God 
uh, Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And I think it will be a different rule at that point. Uh, it's all believers, and uh, it will be a different kingdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, though. Any other questions on the kingdom? Okay. Um, I have a comment to that. Sure. As a nation, that would be the ultimate one world order. The ult- okay, I, I can I can repeat. Pastor Rody said the ultimate one world order. order. That would be when that's right. Rules, right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. That. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 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 And that's the kingdom that we'll see will come at 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 the second coming. Because of course, right now we don't have one. Uh, one worldly ruling order. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Yeah, and trying to. Hopefully, it could happen. Yeah, uh, but yeah, at the end of time, <clears throat> we'll have. You know, right now we have ruling orders, but uh, they could be. You know, they're still infested with sin, and sin dominates. But of course, at the second coming, at the new kingdom, there'll be no sin, and it will be the ultimate, true, perfect world new order. So that's that's a great point. So. Yes, I'll say. I'll have to say, as the vicar, Pastor Rody was correct on that. <laughs> That's great. <clears throat> okay, so still staying with verse thirteen here, because a lot. Um, so we talked about delivering us from the domain of darkness, original sin, transfer us then into the kingdom, which we just talked about, kingdom here and now that's already with us. And then the king, the ultimate kingdom will come um, at the second coming. But then it says, Paul adds this, an interesting phrase. It's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, this is really fascinating stuff. Paul adds this kind of new element to kingdom. It's about the beloved son. What most commentators uh, believe that what Paul is doing here is is reflective on the words spoken from God at Jesus's baptism. So I, what I'd like to do just briefly here, if we if you have your Bible, if not, I'll read it. If we can turn to Matthew three, uh, verses fourteen through seventeen. Let's take a look at this. Matthew three fourteen through 17. Okay, the baptism of Jesus. Well, I'll just start at 13. I'm going to read the, the whole section here. Matthew three thirteen um, through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying... I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is what? My beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So, beloved son, then Paul uses this here. 
And what Paul's doing then, as he writes this to the Colossians, he's reminding the Colossians that even in their own baptism, they find this transfer, right? This transfer from the dominion of darkness, of original sin, to the kingdom of God. As they are connected in baptism to Jesus and his death and resurrection. So Paul, Paul is adding this in there um, uh, to the Colossians to remind them not only Jesus' baptism, but their own baptisms. And Paul further comments on, talks about this in Romans um, 6, 3 through 5. And I'll just read it real quick. And this is just great language here in terms of baptism then. Paul writes in Romans 6.3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too uh, walk in newness, newness, newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a resurrection of, of, like his... Um, isn't that great stuff? So see, that's what, this is the, 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 uh, the, the, the concept of baptism, that uh, we are baptized into Christ, and that's what Paul is reminding the Colossians here, um, is that they have been baptized into Christ, and this is how we've been transferred into the kingdom of God. So the results of all this, then, is this transfer into the kingdom of God, out of darkness is, as this is redemption language. This is the forgiveness of sins. So our baptism there clearly removes original sin. Our baptism does deliver us from the domain of darkness, which is what Paul's main point is here and what he's telling uh, the Colossians. Um, Any questions on that or any follow-up? So we had original sin, we've got the kingdom, and then we've got um, a reference to baptism in this one verse here, which Paul um, is discussing with the Colossians. Okay. Now verse 14, still some big theological words here, which we'll talk about. So verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So then we're taken out of the darkness into his kingdom through our baptism. Then what benefit does this give for us? Which Paul says in 14. Two huge words. We have redemption and then forgiveness of sins. So let's delve into these couple terms. And again, huge theological terms. So... Um, to redeem, uh, what does this mean? And biblically speaking, to redeem is to purchase at a price, okay? So it's kind of this accounting way to look at everything, right? And this is really the atonement. And I'm going to talk about a couple other instances that Paul uses here on this concept of what Christ's atonement, this redemption in Romans 3:24 through 25 Paul writes and we are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, okay? So the purchase price, Christ purchases us. But how does he do that? In verse 25 of Romans 3, 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. So that's one, one verse that Paul's talking about what this redemption means. The second one is Ephesians 1, 7, where Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So you see here what Paul's doing, this concept of, of redemption and atonement, and the paying of price, is telling us how Christ did that. How did Christ pay for our sins? And it's, it's, it's in his blood. Paul designated the blood and death of Christ as the price for our redemption. Okay, That's what Christ paid for our original sins and the sinners that we are. Um, that's what he paid on our behalf. With, he paid with his, um, with his death and his blood. The present passage is then indicates that the forgiveness that is ours through the cross of Christ is then given to us now in his word and sacraments. And this really entails the entirety of our salvation without limitation. So Christ redeemed us on the cross, purchased us with his um, blood, but, but now that is specifically given to you, to you, to you, and to me in the sacraments. Um, some beautiful language then in the um, second article, the Apostles' Creed, uh, when Luther writes about um, this in the small catechism, I want to kind of look at the, this concept of the atonement, the redemption that, we're t- that Paul's talking about here and what this means. Okay? So the second article, the Apostles' Creed, remember that deals with Christ. So we say this, and in Jesus, of course, the Apostles' Creed is this, And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. Of course, Luther writes, What does this mean? And this is beautiful, what, 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 what we confess about this redemption, what Christ did. So when we say the Apostles' Creed, what we're saying is, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten from the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, and this is key, okay, who has redeemed me, who is a lost and condemned person. Remember, Paul just said that in the dominion of darkness. That's our original sin. So he's redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. And then this concept of the atonement, the redeeming in a price is this, that Christ purchased and won me from all sins, from death and the power from the devil. 
Listen how beautiful Luther then defines this. How did he purchase me and you and all of us? Not with gold or silver, right? So there's an accounting principle to this redemption, but Luther's taking it out of it. It's not really an accounting, but it is. He purchased us not with gold or silver, but with what? But with his holy, precious blood and his innocent sufferings and death. And now what does that give us? Luther says, because of this, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom. We just talked about kingdom. We can live in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Just as he has risen from death, lives and reigns to all eternity, this is most certainly true. So isn't this fantastic here? These, what, these two verses that we looked at in Colossians here really sums up what we confess in Article 2 um, of the Apostles' Creed and what Luther writes about. Original sin, redemption. He purchased us with his blood. And what does that give us? Now we are in where? We are in this basileia, the Greek word. We are in his kingdom now. So we have the now aspect right here, uh, which we confess um, in the Apostles' Creed. So then, a- another question then. What are we saying then when we say that Jesus has redeemed us? Talk, we say, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that Jesus has rescued and reclaimed us from the powers that we ourselves cannot overcome. And this is Colossians 13 through 14. It's the domain of darkness. He's taken us out of that. He has rescued and reclaimed us from the domain of darkness and then transferred us to his kingdom in our baptism. Why why did we need to be redeemed? Of course, I'm being repetitive now, but what is our situation? The entire human race lives under the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil. It's the original sin. And how do we come to be lost and condemned? And these are questions in the small catechism that I'm going through, but you'll see how they line up exactly what Paul's talking about right here. How did we come to be lost and condemned? The devil led Adam and Eve into rebellion by tempting them to doubt and to desire to become like God. Remember that? Fruit? Okay. It was this, what motivated Adam and Eve was what the desire to become like God. Now we have all inherited their desire to sin and the resulting punishment, which again is this original sin. So why then, we asked, did God send his son to rescue us? As our loving creator, he had compassion on us. This word compassion, you guys, I know I love, I love this word. I preached about it, and I get to say the word again. Uh, it's an onomatopoeia, and the word that sounds like a mean, it means, remember in Greek, it's this splachnisomai. sounds like splat, and this is what it means. It's a spilling out of the inward parts. It's a sound that you would hear in the temple as the sacrifices are brought to the altar. The animals cut, and the blood's in the inners spill out, splachnisomai. And this is what, what Christ and God has for us. It's, it's the sound of bleeding and dying. 
And that's what Jesus did for us. This is why God sent his son um, to rescue us. It's all about compassion. And that's what Jesus has for us. Then the small catechism goes on to say, How did Jesus rescue me from sin? By his death on the cross, he paid or redeemed, which Paul is talking about, the entire penalty for our sin. The entire penalty. By his death on the cross, he fully endured and appeased or propitiated the wrath of God toward all people. This is known as universal atonement. It's for the whole world, thereby reconciling us to a God. By his death on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of sin to enslave us. Um, so you see how this, these two verses here, right here, thir- say 13 and 14, really sum up the entire s- uh, second um, part of the Apostles' Creed on original sin transferred to the kingdom of God through our baptism, and then we receive redemption. Okay? Any questions on redemption or this concept of the atonement? Um, so th- this would be the father is on a courtroom scene. He's the judge. He sends his son. He gives his life. The only reason is because that we can become is because the only thing we have that gives us life is the blood. So God is saying that's what you need to give. And since we can't do that when we're alive, we have to die. Jesus did that in the case. So it pleases the Father, and that's the end of this, the payment. Exactly right. And, and you bring up the concept of what's called forensic justification. Forensically, we think of this kind of courtroom setting. God is sitting there as a judge. Who's the prosecutor? Satan is a prosecutor. We're the, we're the, the defendant sitting in the chair. Uh, Satan is pointing at us and arguing to the judge that we're original, we're awful sinners, and what he's arguing that we deserve damnation in hell. Right? Then we have Jesus. Jesus is, is the defense attorney. He's the one that's there, the mediator, and really God looks to us as the, the, the uh, accused through Jesus and what Jesus did. And at that moment, because of what Jesus did, his death and his blood, which covers us, God then sees us through that, through the cross, through Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his blood, and automatically declares us, the defendants, not guilty, Right? and that we, we're free and we will be in the eternal kingdom. So that's right. But he does that, of course, nothing by what we do, but it's looking at us through the cross of Jesus. Okay, and It's all Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So that's kind of how you look at it forensically. It's his forensic justification. That's exactly right. It's the blood of Jesus. That's the atonement, too. That's, that's the atonement. So there's two ways to look at it. You brought, I brought up at the beginning kind of the accounting principle, right, of redemption, which is a purchase. Of course, not purchase with gold or silver, as Luther writes, but with his holy, innocent, precious blood. But then there's also another way to look at it forensically, you know, the way we look at it, kind of courtroom type stuff, that there is this declaration, not on what we do, but it's still looking to us through his blood on the cross where he then declares us not guilty. So kind of two funny things. And there's accounting way. If you're more of an accountant, you can look at it that way. If you're more, 
I don't know, I'm not going to say legal, but there's a forensic way of looking at it too. But that's the atonement, okay? That's what we believe. Jesus atoned for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. And he did this by his blood, his death on the cross for us. But then that was for the whole world, okay? Now, does the whole world, um, are, are they? does that mean that everybody says, is saved? No. Then we're talking about kind of the faith that's given to us. And then it's this, this salvation, this atonement is then given to us then through our baptism, right? Again, it's a visible sign. It gives us a surety that we know that we have been purchased because we can always look at the baptismal font, the water. We can look when the pastor does the water on the baby or whatever age they are. You see a physical proof that this atonement then is delivered to you in these physical signs, these physical means. And the word and the water and baptism, but then continuing us every Sunday and the Lord's Supper. These physical means then that are delivering this atonement specifically for you, okay? Visible signs that come into your mouth when you're eating Christ's body and blood, which then this, re- this atonement is personally given to you. And you've got assurances because we see these physical signs, right? There's no, we don't have to worry about whether we, actually the atonement was to us. We, we know that it happened in these physical means. And then it continues to happen to us when the word is preached into our ears. And that's the means of grace, the three means of grace. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the word. So this is the, the beauty of it. We know that we have been redeemed. We have been purchased we are transferred into God's kingdom, as Paul says, because of these three things that we can always look to. It's not any mystical, weird elements, how we feel. They're visible signs that give us this assurance of our purchase. So, And when Cain and Abel, they had that little disagreement. Um, Light disagreement. <laughs> Ended up in murder. (laughs) But they understood the concept because they knew because of the lamb or when they're shedding of blood for them to be clothed, their father and mother. So they knew the concept. So the Jews knew that this was going to be happening. Absolutely. I mean, that's they understood this concept of the shedding of blood for atonement. I mean, that's all out through the Old Testament. So absolutely. But then what what Paul is saying here and what we see now in the New Testament is this Old Testament sacrifice then was ultimately done in Christ. He's the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world in his sacrifice and his blood then covers the whole world. And there's no other need for these other individual sacrifices that used to happen. Now Christ is. But I think in the original sacrificial system, it was always a looking forward to the ultimate Lamb the ultimate sacrifice, which was in Christ. So the question is, and this may be a little deeper than I I can answer today, but I guess my question is, and and I would have to say, but maybe my pastor may disagree with me, that even in the sacrificial system with Cain and Abel, they knew that it was looking ahead. But I don't know. Think about that. Yeah, because that was after Genesis 3.15, the promises of a Messiah. So I think the sacrificial system was always looking forward to an op- ultimate sacrifice.
talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chris asked about uh, specifically when Cain and Abel were bringing their sacrifices. Um, was there any forward? And Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but was there? Did they know that there was a forward sacrifice that would happen at that point? I, I really don't know. I think that was after Genesis three fifteen. Yeah, the bruised heel definitively speaks to the suffering of the Messiah. Now, is that reflected in the content of the sacrifices of Cain and Abel? That's subject to some debate, even amongst interpreters. It's far more common to see via Hebrews 11, no, it's their faith versus lack of faith, as opposed to the material offered. Um those the minority on the other side might point to first john which seems to have a more heavy emphasis on not to the exclusion of faith but a more heavy emphasis on the fact that the faith of abel manifests in a better sacrifice than the sacrifice of Cain. What's important there is the shift to the sacrifice, to the fruit of faith itself being better. Now, in what way is it better? That's where you say, well, one might be better because it uh, portrays Christ crucified, it's a blood sacrifice, the other not. Uh, But, okay, what would be the counter-argument against that? It would be, well, uh, Abel is a gardener, or or excuse me, Cain is the gardener or farmer, and so he's simply sacrificed from his vocation, and Abel is a shepherd and sacrificed from his vocation. So that would seem to mitigate that there's a real qualitative difference between their sacrifices. So, okay, so that's, that's the way the commentators argue back and forth. One thing that we can clearly see, though, is an image and foreshadowing in Abel as shepherd, uh, and in Abel being second born, we can see types of Christ. Christ as the second Adam, Christ as the good shepherd. We can see in the blood sacrifice of Abel a foreshadowing of the blood sacrifice of Christ, to be sure. Just as we can see in Abel's own murder, a foreshadowing of our Lord's murder. And in Abel's blood, crying for vengeance, a foreshadowing of our Lord's blood, crying not for vengeance, but for mercy, for forgiveness of sin. So those are some of the nexus of thoughts that have been tossed around for 2,000 years. Good question. And the beauty of being a vicar when you don't know the answer, you can always say pastor. And he did a great job of bailing me out there. Thank you. (laughs) This was great. But good point, good point. But then ultimately, as I said, the ultimate sacrifice, you know, is is Christ, which is then delivered to us in in the means. Um, So then I, I, okay, we've just spent a little bit of time on this concept then of redemption and atonement and then how this is delivered to us. There is one more big word here in, in verse 14. So we talked about in Christ then is in whom we have redemption, which I talked about. And then finally, um, there's a comma, the forgiveness of sins. Um, there's a little 
clarification on this redemption, forgiveness of sins. So let's kind of look at this. I was like, why? Why is it both? But uh, Paul, when Paul uses then this, when we have redemption, then what he's saying is, well, what does that mean? And ultimately, it comes down to this forgiveness of sins. The Greek word that Paul uses here is it's um, a feason. Um, it it the true definition of that is really to let go or to dismiss. So really, when you see this, it's 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 the forgiveness of sins. Then what what Paul is talking about is is that God through Christ is really just letting go or dismissing your sins. Okay. And this is really a, a consequence of the docto- doctrine of justification. In justification, your sins are let go. And uh, where do they go? And this is, I took a, a class with Dr. Uh, Masaki on, um, on the, uh, the, what was it? Yeah, it was Augsburg Confession, as Lutheran Confessions one. And Dr. Masaki made this point. I think it's really cool. He said, where do, where do your sins go? Christ, uh, Christ, they go on Christ. And where are your sins? They are, they are not eliminated, but then they were transferred to Christ, and then you are free. And, and then he talks about, and this is why I kind of want to read the baptismal account of Jesus in Matthew. So the question becomes then, uh, why, why was Jesus baptized, right? And you, hear a lot of reasons, but what Dr. Misaki and I've heard others explain it is if this is where this transfer happened, that our sins were placed on him. And I've heard this great um, story, I mean, analogy of what this means. So picture um, a lake, okay? And the lake is just dirty, awfully filthy. You guys, you guys may have heard this. If you have, bear with me. Dirty, dirty, awfully filthy lake. Just grime and everything is dirty. In the pasture you see this beautiful lamb, white, bright, perfect, no dirt, anything. Just as clean as you can get. Then when the lamb comes up to the lake, enters the lake, all the dirt and grime in the lake goes on to that lamb, and then the lamb walks out of the lake, and the lake is perfectly beautiful, perfectly clean. But as the lamb comes out, that lamb now has all the filth that was in that lake. And that's what we see with Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, he was the lamb who went into the lake. All the filth was on him. All of our sins at that point, the sins of the world, were transferred onto Jesus in his baptism, comes out of the lake, the lake is perfectly beautiful, that's us, the lake, all of our sins were then placed on him, okay, and then the sins, the, the lamb was taken, this dirty, grimy lamb, all the way to the cross, or to the slaughter, and slaughter and sacrifice, Jesus, what Jesus did, after his baptism, had all the sins of the world upon him, to the cross, and that's where the sins were ultimately crucified on the cross, so this, this concept of forgiveness of sins, that's what it is. Dismiss or let go. Our sins are dismissed, let go. They were placed upon Jesus in his baptism and crucified with him on the cross. And this is what happens to us in our redemption and how our sins are forgiven. Any questions? Everybody heard that analogy before?
Actually, I'm going to have to give, I just thought of where I heard that from. Uh, but Brian Wolfmiller, Pastor Wolfmiller, um, said that a long time ago. So I can't take credit for that, but that's where I got that. There you go. The nails and or, uh, all that. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why Christ was baptized. Christ. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, Different looks at that that are incorrect, you know, as an example for us or whatever. No, Christ was baptized because that's where the sins were, all the sins of the world were placed upon him, and then he took those sins to the cross. Yes, did you have a question? Let me get the microphone to you. <coughs> okay. I like the, the illustration of the, if I, your voice is so soft and my hearing aids are I'm not sorry. in my, in okay. my ears right now. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, anyway, I, but, the, but the, this makes me think of a conversation yesterday that uh, I had. Um, the mystery of, of uh, please, this is a judgment on my part, but the issue of not having not placing the significance of our acknowledging who we are before Christ in our sin um, presentation, our, our yeah. disobedience. The lady was telling me that she has no reference in her life to the Ten Commandments, and I'm going, that is contrary to what I believe all of Scripture is about that you. Oh yeah, I, I I studied the Ten Commandments when I was in first grade, you know. And and to me, it's the opposite. As we grow older, the significance of our sin nature before Christ, that He was punished for on the cross. It, there's a there's a lot of. From my viewpoint, and please, it's a judgment, but there's a lot of illiteracy within the the body of Christ. And when we when we know the Ten Commandments, you know uh, the Ten Commandments do show us right. When you look at every commandment and what's required of it, it does show us the extent of our sin, and then that in turn shows us the extent of what Jesus had on him at his baptism, the whole world, and taking it to the cross, it just really shows the extent of what, you know, what a huge debt that, that Christ did pay for us with his um, blood on the cross. And that's one of the parts about the, the, the Ten Commandments. It, it does show, I mean, it shows us the significance of our sin, and then it shows us why we look to the cross, right? We need the cross, because nobody can live up to the, the Ten Commandments perfectly. So that's one reason that the, the, the law was given to us, is to show us our sin. Now, of course, there's other reasons for the, the, for the uh, Ten Commandments. There's the, the, the curb, um, the, the curb, which is the political realm. The mirror, which I just talked about, right, was to show us our sin. But then also we, we believe that the Ten Commandments are a guide for then not in the justified, not in your justification, but in your sanctified life. That's how we live in this world now, in God's kingdom of the left hand, right? In our vocations, where ultimately we uh, love our neighbor and we, and we do good for the neighbor, and we do in our sanctified life 
uh, look at the Ten Commandments on how we're to treat our neighbor. So that's right. And so then if you don't have the Ten Commandments, then you don't have really, you're, you're not exposed or you don't get the shock of actually what the significance was of Jesus' baptism and death on the cross for us and his atoning work. And then you don't know then you don't know how to love your neighbor. You don't know how to live in this world in your sanctified life and, and live your life devoted for your neighbor and all the different vocations that the Ten Commandments give us. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's powerful to me. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you, you're mimicking a great theologian within our, uh, within our synod, actually the founder of the synod, uh, C.F.W. Walther, in his book, uh, Law and Gospel, that's what he says. He says that when we're preaching, we're taught this at the seminary, that uh, you know, we've got, you've, got to, you've got to give the law sternly cause it, so everybody knows their guilt before God. And, but what, why do we do that? Then it makes, when you hear about Christ's death on the cross and the forgiveness of sin for you, it makes the gospel so much more sweeter, right? So if you don't have an understanding of this original sin of the Ten Commandments and our, the, the gravity of our sin and the sins of the world, then the gospel's really not that sweet for you. So that's why I think our Lord's doctrine on the law and gospel is so great, because it exposes us who we are, but then it ultimately turns us to the sweetest thing of all, the gospel and the atonement uh, that, that we just talked about, where Christ died on the cross for our sins. So that's exactly right. Think of how... Hmm? That's right. When you don't believe the Ten Commandments, then it's sad. That's why we continually pray. And what we can do as Christians in this situation is um, in our vocations, if your vocation calls, you know, if you're an authority figure, you can move it. But if you're not, um, what we do is we pray. And that's why we constantly in the, in the service here, the divine service here, you know, when Pastor and I either do the general prayer, we usually always pray for society and our governing authorities. So, And that's then this back to the kingdom, right? Even though God is ruling now, we do have the left-hand kingdom. And uh, we do have sin, but we still pray uh, for our authorities and those who are in power that they would do the right thing um, um, to help alleviate these problems. So, good point. Okay, let me wrap this up. we got a couple more minutes here. I'm going to wrap this section up, and then next week we'll jump into this another huge area of theology, which is the preeminence of Christ. But... Um, it's worth noting that Paul begins, remember, Paul begins this section of prayer at verse 9. We talked about wisdom. But then it's sandwiched between Paul asks about wisdom, but then at the end, he ends with the forgiveness of sins. Christ's death on the cross is foolishness to the wisdom of the world, but it's God's wisdom for those to be saved. So I think that's neat. We have wisdom at the beginning, then uh, forgiveness of sins. So then, to wrap up there, uh, Paul's thanksgiving for his readers um, that we, we, we looked at before we got into this source of knowledge um, segues into this intersection for the ongoing salvation benefits and nurture that they need. And this is what we just talked about in this source of knowledge section. Paul, again, to summarize, Paul prays that his readers may have all the blessings of wisdom and knowledge. And these terms describe the relationship with Jesus. Wisdom and knowledge are benefits which come by way of the word of God and affect one's entire being. being. The one with God's gifts of wisdom is in favorable status before God. As a consequence of his being transformed, he's able to do good works that characterize the life pleasing to God. 
The transformation of one's being shows itself by a number of things. The Christian bears the good the fruit of good works in his conduct. He increases, grows in his knowledge and faith in God, and he is powered by God to have endurance and patience in this life. He gives thanks to God with joy for the favorable status before God, which he has received in Christ. And again, the favorable status, which we went through, is described in a number of ways. And we talked inheritance, rescue, rule, redemption, forgiveness. That's what Paul just went through. In its own way, each of these concepts denotes what one has through the knowledge and faith in Christ. Paul's prayer is not only that his readers may continue these, but also increase in, in thought and increase in their faith in Christ. That's kind of sum up where we went. So next um, week we'll go on to then really what, 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 who Christ is. Again, he is addressing these, this herit- the heretics within the church. So he's going to really get even further into deeper who Christ was. So we'll hit that uh, next time. So it looks like uh, we are out of time. So we'll wrap it up. Thank you all. Thank you all for the very good questions. And uh, the Lord be with you.